This is the Malaya Movement Podcast. This is the Malaya Movement Northeast Podcast. We are here to bring you information to empower you to defend human rights, democracy, and sovereignty in the Philippines and resist President Rodrigo Duterte's dictatorship. In this pilot episode, we will talk about the anti-terror law in the Philippines. Why have there been large-scale protests against the new anti-terror law in the Philippines and even protests around the world? Also known as Republic Act 11479 or the Anti-Terror Act of 2020, the law opens the Pandora's box to abuses of power and the curtailment of human rights and civil liberties by the Philippine state, all in the guise of fighting terrorism. What does it mean for the diaspora? What does it mean for non-Philippine citizens? We will explore the anti-terror law's context within the deep-seated culture of state repression and impunity in the Philippines under Duterte, its international implications for those overseas in the diaspora, why we need to stand up against it, and what we can do to fight it. Malaya Movement Mass arrests, forced disappearances, and extrajudicial killings. These acts are inhumane and unfortunately commonplace in the Philippines under the current president, Rodrigo Duterte. They're also bravely cataloged by Filipinos, despite the risk involved, under the hashtag Everyday Impunity. The shots of families mourning, neighbors' stories of the drug war, and more violent images of bodies left on the street. Now, Duterte wants to elevate that risk further. The Anti-Terror Act doesn't just threaten reporters. It threatens anyone who voices dissent, and it forces us to imagine worse outcomes to times which already amount to casual fascism. One time involved Maria Victoria Beltran often known as Bambi Beltran, whose echoing reporting that outlets like CNN, Cebu Daily News, and Sunstar had reported when officials charged her with spreading fake news. Beltran noted the 9,000 new cases of COVID-19 in called Cebu City and Epicenter. The next morning, police came for her. When asked for a warrant, they said they would handcuff her if she refused to go. They never had a warrant, and neither did the officers who arrested nine people involved in a COVID-19 relief drive in Nozigari, Bulacan, nor the officers who arrested 20 protesters at a Manila Pride rally. So why is this happening? When can you be arrested without a warrant, and why does it look so easy for the Philippine government to use warrantless arrest to quell dissent? To answer why warrantless arrests are a thing, let's cover an example to get an idea of their intended use. Imagine you're on the street, and you see someone smash a car window and is attempting to take whatever is inside. You see an officer on the street too, and they're witnessing the whole thing. What we wouldn't expect in this situation is the officer turn, running away from the scene to get a warrant from a judge. Instead, we expect the officer to intervene in a reasonable and responsible way. And we see this idea in Section 5 of Rule 113 of the Rules of Court. The document often cited in warrantless arrest, which states three conditions, only the first two of which concern us. A peace officer or private person may, without a warrant, arrest the person, a when in his presence the person to be arrested has committed is actually committing or is attempting to commit an offense, and b, when an offense has just been committed and he has probable cause to believe, based on personal knowledge or facts or circumstances, that the person to be arrested has committed it. So in broad strokes, warrantless arrest can occur when an officer is present and sees an offense occur, or they have probable cause for belief that the detained committed an offense. But what if there is a law that directly attacks dissent? or culture within the police, within the government, that encourages the interpretation of acts of dissent as violations of laws. 
We see this with Beltran, we see this with the Relief Volunteers, and we see this with the Pride Protesters, and countless others see this on the ground as their Kasamas are hauled away, frequently without reference to any specific law. Remember, Beltran was arrested for spreading fake news when she was echoing reporting from distinguished sources. The Nozagari volunteers were arrested for violating quarantine protocols, a restriction which Jonathan Malaya, an internal official, noted is relaxed for aid volunteers when he was speaking on the case. They are also charged with spreading propaganda. That propaganda consisted of copies of Pinoy Weekly and zines from peasant advocates. And the police who apprehended Manila Pride protesters cited no specific law, only saying that it's in the law that it's prohibited. The police and politicians have shown themselves too eager to use vague laws when they decide to even cite laws to quell dissent. And this isn't new. The Anti-Terror Act is the most recent addition to a history of policy work done to make it harder for people to voice their struggles and criticize the government. In 2007, the Human Security Act passed into law and was criticized for its vague definitions of terror, and a year later, reporting came out documenting that extrajudicial killings and instances of torture resulting from it. This year's Anti-Terror Act is a successor to the HSA. One way you can see this is how the HSA permitted three days of warrantless detention, and the AT extends that, now permitting 14 days with a possible 10-day extension. Access to those detained has also been restricted. Religious ministers and accredited national or international NGOs will be excluded, which will only stifle reporting like those detailing the abuses resulting from the HSA. Reporting that is all the more important considering the removal of a requirement to present those who have been detained to a judge whose job is to determine if the police tortured them. Most important, though, is the ATA's codification of new crimes. Those include threat to commit terrorism, planning, training, preparing, and facilitating the commission of terrorism, inciting to commit terrorism, and recruitment to and membership in a terrorist organization. These crimes are purposefully vague. Lawyers voice fears on how preparing the commission of terrorism can be something as innocuous as having documents deemed connected to acts of terror, like a pamphlet from a protest. Inciting to commit terrorism poses a direct threat to voices of opposition, such as those who pen or voice speeches or make emblems or banners. Recruitment and membership in a terrorist organization is a crime punishable by life imprisonment is especially harrowing considering the Philippines' history of red-tagging aid groups and local organizers, which brings us to the Anti-Terrorism Council. Being arrested for a crime related to the ATA doesn't require a warrant. It requires an authorization from the Anti-Terrorism Council, which includes officials close to Duterte. Some are members of the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict, a group known for red-tagging human rights advocates, local organizers, and representatives of indigenous people. Red-tagging was what also led to an assassination attempt on Brandon Lee, an indigenous rights activist from San Francisco, and it's one of the Philippine government's primary ways of threatening activists and government critics. And the threat extends beyond the Philippines. Malaya Movement They are terrorists because we... Uh, I finally declared them to be one. That's President Rodrigo Duterte. He made this statement in his most recent public address just days after signing the Anti-Terror Act into law on July 3rd. It turns out he's actually right. He can designate whomever he wants to be as a terrorist. This is because the new law creates the Anti-Terror Council, which is composed entirely of Duterte's appointees and gives them broad powers to designate who they deem to be as a terrorist. It removes the involvement of the courts entirely. The council has almost absolute power to authorize the police and even the military to arrest without warrant anybody they suspect, 
even wrongly, mistakenly, or maliciously as a terrorist, and then detain them up to 24 days, which is eight times longer than what the Philippine Constitution permits. Despite the systemic and pervasive abuses of power, Duterte and his cronies continue to insist that they will not abuse the new law and that it is, quote-unquote, the much-needed legal weapons that they need to fight terrorism. So, who is Duterte targeting in the Philippines? The poor and his so-called war on drugs? Indigenous peoples, farmers, and peasants fighting for their rights to land? Workers fighting for better working conditions and ending contractualization? Activists who advocate for socialism? Those defending basic human rights? Now, the anti-terror law looks to target those even outside of the Philippines. I hate it when you call me terrorista. I wish I could pretend you're not racista. You know this bill's a joke. La, la, la. A particular aspect of the anti-terror law that has alarmed Filipinos in the diaspora, solidarity allies in the U.S. and across the world is its extraterritorial applications, or provisions that can criminalize those outside of the Philippines and those who are not Philippine citizens. This extends the reach to really anyone around the globe. There's already precedent for Duterte targeting international institutions and individuals, and the anti-terror law only adds fuel to the fire. So let's examine these sections of the anti-terror law. But first, I want to preface that I am not a lawyer, I'm just someone trying to understand this law. Um, I'd like to give credit to the National Union of People's Lawyers in the Philippines and the National Lawyers Guild for their analysis and breakdown on these sections. So there are three sections of note when it comes to the impacts of non-Philippine citizens and extraterritorial applications of the anti-terror law. These are sections 11, 12, and 49. So section 11, it defines who the law considers to be as a foreign terrorist. A person no longer has to be a participant in a terrorist act to be considered a terrorist, but merely someone that the Anti-Terror Council believes to have intent to, quote, perpetrate, plan, or prepare for, or participate in terrorism, or provide or receive terrorist training, end quote. As with so many questionable provisions of the Anti-Terror Act, it broadens the scope and is designed to punish intent. It leaves a lot of wiggle room for the Anti-Terror Council's interpretation. Punishments are even more severe in comparison to the 2007 law that the Anti-Terror Act replaces. So if you're designated to be a foreign terrorist, you are subject to life imprisonment. Next, Section 12 criminalizes material support for terrorists. Material support in the Anti-Terror Act is not just tangible property or money, but also constitutes what is intangible, such as services, advice, lodging, training, assistance, safe housing, documentation, facilities, personnel, even transportation. Organizations receiving international humanitarian aid that are not recognized by the Philippine government are subject to being labeled as terrorist, since the law has conditions on what constitutes a quote-unquote humanitarian organization, and yes, again leaves it up to the Anti-Terror Council say. The United Nations and the Human Rights Watch have already spoken out against these provisions. On material support, the National Lawyers Guild pointed out that there is precedent in the United States under the Patriot Act for law enforcement to criminalize activists in the U.S. who support international movements that are considered quote-unquote terrorist by foreign governments. If the U.S. government aims to cooperate and gain by working with foreign governments, 
it will utilize U.S. law enforcement to increase surveillance on targeted U.S. citizens with the goal of disrupting, destabilizing, and delegitimizing said movements. Okay, and for the last one, Section 49 is the kicker. It outlines the Anti-Terror Act's extraterritorial applications, or meaning application beyond Philippine territory. Section 49 is very vague and contains messy contradictions with international law. So who does it include in its scope? There are six categories listed in Section 49. So the anti-terror law would apply to the following. One, Filipinos who commit prohibited acts under the anti-terror law outside of Philippine territory. Just to note, what the law means by quote-unquote Filipino is extremely vague. It could potentially cover those who are residents of other countries, those with different immigration statuses, or those who are simply Filipino by birth. Two, individuals outside the Philippines but who commit prohibited acts inside Philippine territory. So this would include Filipinos and non-Philippine citizens alike. Three, individuals who commit prohibited acts under this law on board a Philippine ship or airship. Four, individuals who commit prohibited acts under this law within embassy, consulate, or diplomatic premises. On this note, the National Union for People's Lawyers noted that even under international law, an embassy or consulate does not constitute territory of the country that it represents. The embassy or consulate is still the territory of the host country. So this is a contradiction that the anti-terror law poses with this particular section. Five, individuals outside the Philippines who commit prohibited acts in this law against Filipinos where citizenship is a factor. So, a person under this provision can be prosecuted if the Anti-Terror Council links them to an act deemed as terrorism against someone who has Philippine citizenship. So, if you're speaking out against state repression by the Philippine National Police or the Armed Forces of the Philippines, if the Anti-Terror Council decides so, you could be prosecuted as a principal actor in a terrorist act or intent to commit one. Six, individuals who commit the prohibited acts in this law directly against the Philippine government. So this is a sort of catch-all category. Any individual committing what the Anti-Terror Council deems to be a terrorist act or intent to commit one against the Philippine government from anywhere around the world, regardless of citizenship, regardless of their Filipino or non-Filipino, that person may have criminal cases filed against them in the Philippine courts under this law. As per Section 49, the Philippine government may attempt to extradite you or force you to leave your country of residence so that you'll face charges in the Philippines. This would be subject to treaties between the Philippines and that particular country. Extraterritorial applications of the anti-terror law is significant. For those who reside abroad, for those simply exercising their civil and political rights abroad, whether Filipino or non-Filipino, whether a Philippine citizen or non-Philippine citizen, if the Anti-Terror Council finds their acts to be inconsistent with the interests of the Philippine government, the Council can authorize the filing of criminal cases against them and complaints would be filed in Philippine courts without those individuals having the opportunity to refute those allegations. The case would proceed in the Philippines, those individuals will have a standing warrant of arrest on their heads, and the next time they enter the Philippines, they could be arrested. We must not forget that while we are concerned on how this law could impact us in the diaspora as well as our solidarity allies outside of the Philippines, Duterte's state-sanctioned terror is very real on the ground back home. The current situation for Filipinos on the ground will only intensify. 
we are sure to see the continued human rights violations, forced disappearances, mass arrests, and even more extrajudicial killings of those who resist Duterte's fascist attacks, and those who are simply fighting for their basic rights, genuine democracy, and a more just society. We must use our voices from abroad to oppose the anti-terror law, urge our legislators to condemn the law to diplomatically isolate Duterte, and resist his dictatorship. We cannot remain silent even as Duterte has had a long history and practice of targeting those around the world to criticize his regime. So what international institutions and individuals has Duterte targeted in the past? What has this looked like historically? Let's take a look. Malaya Movement On the targeting of dissent of activists then and now, in the Philippines and internationally. It's no surprise that the Duterte regime is often compared to the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. From the notorious drug war to the attacks on indigenous communities, to the shutdown of ABS-CBN, and to the attacks, harassments, and killings and red-tagging of activists, history tends to rhyme and repeat itself. Duterte's anti-terror bill has often been compared to martial law. Former Supreme Court Justice Antonio Carpio stating, The Anti-Terrorism Act, as part of the law of the land, it as if the Philippines is permanently under a situation worse than martial law. We are likely to see a continuation of the human rights abuses and the targeting of dissent, as we have seen in both this administration and past Philippine dictators. What can we expect from the anti-terror laws Filipinos living in the United States based on the current actions of Duterte mirroring that of past dictators such as Marcos? One important example of a Philippine dictator targeting dissent outside the Philippines was in the case of Silmi Domingo and Jean Viernes during the Marcos regime. Silmi and Jean were two labor activists and members of the KDP as well as members of the Local 37 Union of the International Longshoresmen and Warehouse Union, or the ILWU, in Seattle. They had been working on reforming corruption within the union, but were assassinated by two individuals believed to be tied to the Marcos regime. Jean Viernes had been meeting with the KMU, a group of militant labor unions in the Philippines, to discuss the building of international solidarity between labor activists in the U.S. and the Philippines. Jean had spoken at the ILWU National Convention in May of 1981 in Hawaii and had expressed anti-Marcos views. They had also organized anti-Marcos demonstrations in Seattle. The Committee for Justice for Domingo and Viernes had filed a $30 million civil suit in the U.S. District Court charging the Marcos government for the killings. And in 1989, a federal court was able to find Marcos guilty for ordering the assassinations. On Duterte, the Philippine government has been involved in the red tagging of human rights advocates, environmentalists, labor activists, and journalists. A notable example is in the case of Brandon Lee, a U.S. citizen who is living in the Philippines working on the Ifugao peasant movement. Brandon Lee was shot four times outside of his home in the Ifugao province. Human rights advocates believe the shooters to be from the Duterte administration and demand to hold the security forces of the Philippines accountable. The International Coalition for Human Rights, or ISHRP, which supported the Justice for Brandon Lee campaign, was also red-tagged, where, according to a statement by ISHRP, on May 13th, Philippine Defense Secretary Delphine Lorenzana 
alleged in a media conference that the U.S. chapter of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines is engaged with armed struggles in the Philippines, where this allegation was made without any evidence. This statement was made in regards to ISHRP opposing U.S. arms sales to the Philippines. The red tagging of international organizations has also occurred several times, including one instance where the Duterte administration had claimed that Belgium and the EU, without any evidence, was funding terrorist fronts in the Philippines. From a Rappler article published in May 13, 2019, General Antonio Parley Jr., among the members of the delegation, said that the EU and the Belgian Foreign Ministry to stop financing around 30 groups claiming their funds to be used to fuel terroristic acts by the CPP and PA. Among these groups were rural missionaries in the Philippines, human rights groups, Carapatan, and the Iban Foundation. In 2017, the Philippine government filed a petition claiming 600 individuals to be alleged communist guerrillas, including Victoria Tauli Corpus, appointed in 2014 as UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Duterte's hit list, so to speak, of various critics that he labeled as possible communist threats are an egregious example of red tagging. The petition even made the basis claim that different individuals were leaders of the Maoist rebel group. The history of the Philippine government's targeting of activists, human rights advocates, labor organizers, and journalists, and others that showed dissent by way of red-tagging, unlawful arrests, or assassinations gives us a basis to believe that the Philippine government, under Duterte, will not uphold human rights with the anti-terror law. The long record of attacks on dissent, both in the Philippines and internationally, from the martial law era of Ferdinand Marcos, as well as the Duterte's administration's history of human rights abuses, can give us an idea of what is to come under the passing of the anti-terror law. Malaya Movement Let's talk about the Philippine National Police's growing presence in the U.S., the U.S.'s material connection to Philippine state violence, and what we can do to resist. Since 2016, President Duterte's war on drugs has been carried out by the Philippine National Police, who have become the object of international censure for the extraordinarily high number of extrajudicial killings. But let's also consider how the Philippine National Police and the Duterte presidency are strongly supported by the United States. In 2012, the Philippine National Police developed the first-ever alliance with the New York Police Department, which happens to be the second-largest law enforcement agency in the United States. The partnership was positioned as a way to mitigate transnational crimes with an emphasis on illegal drugs, terrorism, smuggling, human trafficking, maritime fraud, and cybercrime and would involve the collection and sharing of information on transnational crime and counterterrorism. This is particularly troubling, as the U.S.'s current conversation on police brutality has pointed out NYPD's violent and racist reputation. In October of 2019, the Philippine government secured $10 million dollars from the U.S. to construct and operate a state-of-the-art regional counterterrorism training center to provide enhanced training for the Philippine National Police and its regional partners. With a counterterrorism program developed by the NYPD and funded by the United States, the Philippine National Police has created a global system to move within. 
And while the anti-terror law is mostly aimed at Filipinos in the Philippines, Sections 11 and 49 extend its scope to people abroad, defining a foreign terrorist as individual persons who, although physically outside the territorial limits of the Philippines, commits any crimes mentioned in the law. It's this type of language in the law, backed by that global police force, that's extremely alarming. But we can't stop there. The military partnership between the Philippines and the U.S. is much older. Ever since the Philippines attained formal independence in 1946, the U.S. has maintained a military presence on its former colony, guiding and supporting counterinsurgency operations to put down constant rebellions against an oligarchic government. The Philippines is the largest recipient of U.S. military aid in East and Southeast Asia, and it provides an important staging ground for the U.S. military domination in the region. There are still around 5,000 U.S. troops deployed there. In 2018, the U.S. provided $193 million in military aid to the Philippines, plus $63 million in arms sales and 2,253 donated machine guns, 5 million rounds of ammunition, and surveillance equipment of unreported worth. By 2019, more than 80% of the Philippine armed forces were deployed in Mindanao. While state armed forces are supposedly deployed there to protect civilians, their true purpose is to maintain the flow of capital out of the island by any means. Over 456,000 Filipino civilians have been forcibly evacuated from their homes because of military bombings and indiscriminate firing on their communities. Victims have identified the AFP's use of attack helicopters, jet fighters, howitzers, grenade launchers, and bombs, including white phosphorus bombs, in these attacks. The Lumad represent a collective identity of 18 indigenous ethnic groups that grew out of a political awakening among tribes during Marcos's regime of martial law in southern Mindanao. Their land has been seized by multinational corporations and logging companies for wealthy Filipino migrants and multinationals to use the land for planting and export of palm oil, bananas, rubber, and pineapple. For decades, the Lumad have been forced to physically defend their ancestral territories against corporate plunder and militarization. They've even established schools in their communities to supply knowledge to their youth on how to protect their rights, property, and culture, which President Duterte branded as training camps for communist insurgents. Duterte has even encouraged the killing and arrest of Lumad teachers. Soon after President Duterte declared martial law in Mindanao, he proclaimed, Leave. I'm telling those in the Lumad schools now. Get out. I'll bomb you. Totally. Mga bridge sisirain mo nila. Yung mga eskwela, susunugin nila. Yung mga eskwelahan lang ng mga Lumad, yung kanila, they're operating without the Department of uh, Education's permit. Kasi eskwelahan nila, but they are teaching subversion, communism, lahat na. So, umalis kayo dyan. Sabihin ko dyan sa mga lumad ngayon, umalis kayo dyan. Bubumbahan ko yan. Isali ko yung mga struktura ninyo. I will use the armed forces, the, 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 the Philippine Air Force. 
Talagang babumbahan ko yung mga lahat ng ano ninyo. Because you're operating illegally and you are teaching the children to rebel against government. More than 3,000 Lumad people have suffered forced evacuation with nowhere to go, especially during the COVID pandemic. Despite this, the U.S. government continues to show massive support for the Duterte regime. When the Philippine Senate tried to restrict funding for Duterte's drug war, the U.S. government upped its funding to make up the difference. Donald Trump has praised Duterte's war on drugs and said it should be replicated in the U.S. The U.S. government is complicit in and actively supporting the deepening human rights crisis in the Philippines. Around the world, and particularly for the United States, government handling of COVID-19 has brought to light the contradiction between military capacity and human well-being. And until the Philippine government can uphold the basic human rights of its people, we must use our voice and our vote to demand that not one more dime of U.S. taxpayer money should be spent funding a regime mired in the blood of thousands of poor people, farmers, and human rights defenders. Here are three things you can do to resist the anti-terror law and the Duterte presidency. First, Call and email your legislators and ask them to publicly denounce the anti-terror law and to sponsor the Philippine Human Rights Act, which would suspend United States security assistance to the Philippines until such time as human rights violations by Philippine security forces cease and the responsible state forces are held accountable. Second, join a human rights collective like Malaya Movement, iChirp, and Kabataan Alliance to get engaged and contribute to the cause. Third, and most important, use your voice for those who can't. Thanks for listening to the Malaya Movement Northeast podcast pilot episode. Check out our next one. We are developing a series around the anti-terror law, and we'd love to hear from you on what topics you want covered. You can get in touch by following us on Instagram at malaya.northeast. If you want to learn more about the Malaya Movement, visit www.malayamovement.com. This is the Malaya Movement Northeast podcast, and thanks again for listening. Malaya Movement.